Hello and welcome to Machine Learning Engineered. I'm your host, Charlie Yu, and every week I talk to an exceptional data scientist, AI researcher, or software engineer to discover how they bring cutting edge research out of the lab and into products that people love. Before we get started, I want to give a quick shout out to Effective Altruism and the Giving What We Can pledge. I'm not getting paid to say this, but I think these ideas are so important that I want to get the message out. If you're listening to this podcast, most likely you are well into the 1% in the world. By pledging to donate just a small fraction of your income to the most effective charities, you can save the lives of dozens of people living in extreme poverty reduce unnecessary suffering in factory farms, and improve the long-term future of humanity. Join me and over 4,900 others who have pledged to donate over $1.8 billion over their careers by going to givingwhatwecan.org. And with that, let's get on to the show. Today's episode is a compilation of some of my favorite moments from recording the podcast so far. I originally planned on making it just one episode, but there were so many different clips that I really enjoyed and thought were really interesting because of how great the guests have been. So I decided to break it up into two different episodes. One will be released this week and then another next week. The one that you're going to hear today is on the topic of the podcast name. It is on machine learning engineering. And then the one next week will be on machine learning research and career advice. For today's episode on machine learning engineering, you're going to be hearing from Josh Tobin, Shreya Shankar, Luigi Petruno, and Andreas Jansen. If you like what you hear in this compilation, be sure to check out the full-length episodes. So you can find those by either scrolling back in your podcast feed or by checking out our website, mlengineered.com. And now, on to some of my favorite moments from these four guests on machine learning engineering. This first clip comes from my interview with Josh Tobin. He has a PhD from Berkeley and is a former researcher at OpenAI, now working on his own stealth startup in the ML tools space. I asked him about what the biggest barriers that most people face to putting ML in production are, and this was his response. So I spent a lot of time trying to understand this, sort of like beginning of this, this year, and I talked to a bunch of like full-stack deep learning alums and other people in the field, and I think, as you'd imagine, there's a bunch of reasons, right? So one reason is that there's still there's still a talent shortage in ML. So it's it there's ML as it is now is a relatively young field, and so there's a limited number of people that know how to do it, and an even smaller number of people that know how to do it and have done it in production before. So I think that like one thing is just that as more and more of these projects do succeed and do get to maturity, there'll be you know more of a critical mass of people that that know how to put ML into production. That's kind of one reason. Another reason is that there's still, in a lot of organizations, there's still organizational blockers to, to putting ML into production. So 
And a lot of companies, even if there's like high level buy-in that AI is important, that machine learning is important, there's maybe a lack of understanding of what problems it should actually be applied to, where it works, where it doesn't work, what the timelines are and the, the, the budget that's required to actually making these projects succeed. And so in a lot of cases, especially at some um, bigger companies, the, the organization itself is maybe not really ready yet to, to do production ML. Maybe their data infrastructure isn't that mature yet, for example. I think another really big blocker, and this is sort of, I, I don't think we would have articulated it this way at the time, but this is part of what we were trying to do with, with full stack deep learning is that there's, if you, if you, as an organization, decide that you want to build some software, right, there's kind of like a, a playbook that you can run to do that, right? You can, you can read about Agile, right? You can hire people who are experts in that, in that methodology. You can, there's pretty clear role descriptions for software engineers. You can, you can, you know, you can, you know, sort of what to look for in hiring. You can put that team together and then you can really easily sort of measure their progress over time, you know, running sprints, like seeing, seeing what, what, what gets solved each week. But in, in machine learning and in production machine learning in particular, the, the methodology is a lot less mature. And in particular, there's a lot of overlap between building production machine learning systems and building production software, but there's a lot of di- like key differences as well. Some of those differences are that in production ML, right? Like that your data is like really as important as code. And so you need to, you need to treat it like code in the sense that it needs to be version controlled, needs to be like reviewed and sort of thought about pretty carefully. But like the, the tools and processes for doing that are not super uh, mature yet. I think like another big difference is the, the, you can't, you can't apply the same project management mentality to ML mm. as, as you do to software. So in, in software, it's kind of like when I'm like writing software code, right? I don't know. When I, when I, when I have an idea and I like try to implement something, I have a pretty, pretty high success rate. I'm not the yeah. world's best software engineer, so it's not always as fast as I would like it to be. But if I, if I think something's possible and I try it, I don't know, maybe 80%, 90% of the time, I'm able to do it. Maybe even more. But in machine learning, it's kind of the opposite, right? Like yeah. in, in machine learning, like when you have an idea of something that you think will improve your, your model, even for like really, really good people, like machine learning practitioners, it's not just for beginners, right? Maybe like 80 or 90% of the time that you try something, it doesn't work. Right. And so that actually has like pretty profound um, impacts on how you need to do project management for ML, right? Because if you try to measure people based on their outcomes on a weekly basis, let's say, on a, or on a biweekly basis, it's just gonna it's just gonna fail and cause frustration. We sort of learned this the hard way at OpenAI when we had when we started to have like software and machine learning teams work together. When it was like, okay, machine learning researchers try to say like what they're going to get done each week. And then like you come back a week later and it's like the software folks, you know, they're like, okay, I was going to do A, B, and C. I did A and B, ran into some issues with C. It was like harder than I expected. I think I'm going to get it done this week. And then the machine learning folks would be like, yeah, I was going to like do A, B, and C, but then I did A and it like kind of didn't really work. And so then it gave me this other idea for D. And then I wasn't really as excited about B and C anymore. And so I started working on D, but it was like really hard. And so I, I realized I needed to do E first. And so now I'm working on E. And it was like, from a project management perspective, what do you do with that? Does that mean that they're they're not following a discipline process? 
And so I think that figuring out the right strategy for, for managing machine learning projects and communicating timelines, figuring out how much budget to give them and helping like teams work together on machine learning projects to work together to, to move faster is like the right methodology is just not understood yet. That's, that's another big barrier, I think, is methodology. And then the, the last thing I would point to is tooling, right? So w- one of the core challenges in production ML is that production ML is it's, it's a team sport, right? It's a team sport in the sense that there are very, very few people in the world that know how to do all the different things that you need to do in order to build a production ML system, right? So think about what goes into a production ML system. You need pretty robust data engineering pipeline, right? You need to get data from from you know, point A to point B, you need to transform it. You need to do that at scale. It needs to be robust, reliable. Then you need people who are really good at building machine learning models and figuring out like what the right model is to fit this data, like sort of the traditional ML skill set. But those people can't really work quickly unless they have infrastructure around them to you know make sure that they can manage experiments, they can um, do distributed training, they can run hyperparameter sweeps. And then once the models have been trained, then they need to be productionized, right? And so then you need folks that know how to take machine learning models, turn them into you know, scalable production systems, who can set up monitoring for them, who can make sure that the, there are like re- repeatable pipelines for those things to be retrained. And at each of those, you'd think that there's maybe there's four or five like jobs that you need to have in order to build a production ML pipeline, which is, itself is challenging. But the even more challenging thing is that all of those all those pieces are like very tightly coupled with each other. Mm-hmm, so those folks mm-hmm. need to work yep. really, really closely together. And, and so because of that, I think a big place where a lot of companies fall down is in the, the gaps between those between the, the those different sort of disciplines that are all required. Right. It's like data engineering and ML. When they're separate teams, there's a lot of friction between how they work together. ML and infra, again, if they're separate teams. They might not have the same goals. They might not think about their world the same way. ML and DevOps, same story. So like the reason why I sort of frame this as a tooling problem is that I think in a lot of other areas of software engineering, let's call it, the way that these types of problems are solved, like these these problems at the intersection of different teams is through tooling, right? Like you have a tool that allows SRE and software engineering to work closely together. You have a tool that allows products and design to work closely together. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's like sort of the big missing part of the, the tooling stack in ML right now is the tools that allow all these different disciplines that need to come together in order to do production ML to, to interact with each other in, a, in sort of a low friction and uh, repeatable way. And I think really like the direction that the field needs to move in is if you think about who the core, like the core sort of value creator in the machine learning tool chain is, it's like it's kind of it's like the people who are building models, right? That's kind of that's the core thing that that needs to happen to make machine learning work. And so I think the, the other missing piece is that I think the tooling needs to be more oriented towards helping those folks um, take more ownership over the rest of the pipeline, the data engineering part, the infrastructure part, the deployment, monitoring, retraining part as well. After that amazing answer. I went on to ask him what the major mistakes that he sees companies and teams make in deploying machine learning models. I'll mention two things. One is, I think a really common attitude in 
the machine learning world historically has been like, let's get this model into production and then see what happens. <laughs> and I think that more and more companies are starting to have stories about like when they did that and then it caused some like really big issue, like some multi-million dollar outage or problem. And the challenge is that like, as soon as you start to rely on that model, then you need to be really, really careful about the data that it, that model is seeing in production. Because if that data no longer matches the assumptions that it's trained on, then you're going to have a bad time. And so I think thinking upfront, at least about how you're going to know how, whether that model is still performing well is really important and is like super, super underrated in the production ML, ML mm-hmm. world right now. Really, And the, the types of things that can go wrong, right? Degradations in performance, but also just like types, types of bias in the model's predictions that you mm. didn't think carefully enough about in advance, but maybe could have predicted. And I think a high level, like the, in, in my opinion, sort of the most, most principled way to think about that is through testing. So I think testing of machine learning models is also super under-invested in at this stage. So that's, that's kind of like one category of mistakes is just not thinking carefully enough about, okay, my validation score is good. So what, right? Does that actually mean my model is good? Or does that just mean that my validation score is good? And, but there's some other weird quirk in my model's performance that will cause it to degrade over time. Or that is just, is a blind spot in how I'm, in how I'm evaluating the model right now. Second sort of category of things that I see a lot is companies that look at the infrastructure landscape. Right. They see, as you pointed out, like all of these different options for tools, um, end-to-end tools, individual tools. And maybe they look at some of the end-to-end tools and they decide that like none of those really meet their needs. And so they just decide they go like fully extreme in the other direction and decide to completely build their own. And I think this is like a classic mistake that a lot of organizations make in general. But building machine learning infrastructure is like really hard for all the reasons that we that we've that we've already talked about. And so I think that if it's not your core competency to build infrastructure, you probably should think carefully about whether you really should be investing in that. It will just end up being more expensive than you think. And then your infrastructure is not going to be state of the art. And then you're going to be saddled with maintaining it. And you're just going to have this like constant cost of, of maintaining that infrastructure, which is hard in ML because all the pieces that you're building on are moving so quickly, right? Tensor, like the, the underlying frameworks even are still evolving really quickly. That's kind of the second category of mistakes I'd point out is over-indexing on like building your own tools and infrastructure. After Josh dug into what the biggest barriers and the most common mistakes that he's seen made, I wanted to get his view on how he thought machine learning would be built in the future. I I think that the way that people are going to build machine learning systems is going to look really different in five or 10 years than it looks right Mm, now. Interesting. I think that right now, there's tons of moving pieces and there's an emphasis on modeling right? and like people, people think of like modeling as kind of the hard part. Most people who have done it think of like data as the hard part, but like modeling is sort of the part that, that gets a lot of attention. And I think that what's going to happen, what's, what's happening right now is that in most branches of ML, it's becoming less and less necessary to be an expert in order to do the modeling piece. Yeah. Right. So a, f- a few trends that are working towards that. One, like the software frameworks are getting more mature. Right? So when I started doing ML, if you wanted to train a neural network, you were like either trying to upgrade, trying to like mess around with CUDA drivers and install Cafe or like maybe implementing stuff from scratch or like you were trying to use Theano and yeah. you had to read papers to try to find like what the right hyperparameters were. 
Now you have uh, libraries like FastAI, like Keras, that kind of just do the right thing out of the box, right? And so a lot of the like expertise around that sort of thing is becoming less and less necessary. Second trend that's kind of working in that favor, AutoML sort of feels like it's maybe actually starting to become useful. I was kind of bearish on AutoML for a long time because it it just it always seemed really like the the time that you would actually want to use AutoML is if you already had state-of-the-art performance and you wanted to spend a bunch of money to beat your own state-of-the-art performance. Like Google was doing it and like no one for it didn't really make that much sense for anyone else. But I think AutoML systems have come a long way and I think that they'll continue to get a lot better. Third trend that's kind of working in that favor is maturity of a lot of the subfields of ML, right? So again, 2015, 2014, if you're doing computer vision and you wanted to keep up with state-of-the-art, you basically had to implement a new continent architecture every six months, maybe even more frequently than that. Nowadays, like most people who are doing computer vision, use something that looks like ResNet and it's basically good enough. For, yeah. Unless you're like really, really pushing limits or you have performance constraints. And I think a lot of subfields of ML are sort of going through a similar maturation where it's, you don't like architecture selection doesn't really matter as much anymore. There's like an architecture that's simple, easy to get right, and works almost as well as state-of-the-art, and you can kind of just rely on that. And then the fourth trend that's, that is like pushing the world in that direction is, and this is one that I've changed my mind about in the past six months or so, is like maturation of what I'd call like mega APIs. And the, the sort of the main example here is, is GPT-3, right? And I think that like the surprising thing to me about GPT-3, even having seen like internal language model versions when I left OpenAI like a year ago, was how general purpose it is, right? Like how many, how how broad a range of tasks you could you could use it to solve. Mm-hmm. And so I think that like right now, very few ML use cases for uh, a relatively small small chunk of those are are done using APIs because just generally APIs are sort of like one size fits all, and it's like never quite good enough for the actual task that you want to solve. But I think that one of the dynamics in ML is that people still underestimate the returns to scale that you get from just being willing to spend more money on compute and data, build a Mm. bigger model. And so I think that like an increasing chunk of ML use cases are just going to be like, there'll be like five or six APIs for different like categories of tasks. And it won't make sense to train your own thing from scratch. You're basically just going to, you're basically going to fine tune one of those models. And so I think all of those four trends are sort of pushing the field toward it being a lot easier for non-experts to train models. And like the training of models, I think is becoming more and more democratized. And so if you think about the implication that that's going to have on the field as a whole, well, the the thing that you'll actually, let's say you don't need to think about training models at all, right? Then how do you create a good production ML system? You still need to think about data engineering and infrastructure and stuff like that. But really the core thing that you need to do infrastructure aside is like this process of creating better and better data sets to train those models on over time. The data set is going to be your proprietary information. Mm -hmm. That piece of it is going to become more and more important. And so I think the way that like, the way that building machine learning systems is going to work in 10 years is that you're going to have a piece of software that you that you interface with as like a model developer. And what you're going to actually spend your time doing in that piece of software is like data curation, right? Like you're going to be looking at the production data that comes in. You're going to be like trying to understand how well your model is performing. You're going to be like trying to emphasize different parts of that data landscape that you should put more effort into data collection, labeling, training, 
And you're going to be kind of like guiding the model in the right direction to improve its performance over time. But everything else, like the training piece and the infrastructure piece, um, is going to be more or less taken care of for you. Um, not 100%, like you'll still need to have infrastructure folks that you can that can build new features for you that you can consult with. Modelers will still be important because they'll still have, they should still have a say, I think, in what what architectures are getting selected. But I think most of the work is going to be done by a sort of what I would call like a model operator, which is mm-hmm. not really a job that exists right now outside of like maybe a handful of like very progressively thinking self-driving car companies. But I think it's going to become more and more common. Given what he just said about AutoML and the rise of model APIs that make it easier than ever for companies and teams to train their own models without extensive expertise, I wanted to get his perspective on what machine learning engineers should focus on given these trends. Focus on data. Understanding data in your, your domain, understanding how to evaluate models on that data. You should learn about the other pieces of the field. You should learn about data engineering. You should learn about distributed systems, about infrastructure. I think the focus should be on like learning a domain and learning, and in particular, learning like techniques that you can use for data in that domain really well. The rest of the interview with Josh was on how he got started in CS and machine learning, why he focused on machine learning for robotics, and then some insight into his research at OpenAI and his research process in general. So if you're interested in hearing more from Josh, check out the full-length interview in episode 8. These next set of clips come from my interview with Shreya Shankar. She's a machine learning engineer at Viaduct AI, having previously worked for Facebook and Google Brain. She has some really great articles about machine learning on her personal blog, shreya-shankar.com, which I highly recommend that you check out. Similar to the interview with Josh, I started off by asking what she thinks the major barriers that companies face when putting ML into production. I think there's a lot of small parts of that question that I've kind of been learning over the past year, ranging from just the infrastructure needed to kind of serve these models in a reliable fashion. Because like whenever you do research or you're in a research setting, right, you have your fixed traded test set and you build the model once. But when you're out in the world, you want your inference to train ratio to be very high. Like for every time you train the model, you want to be able to serve it. I don't know, have it run inference as much as possible. And we don't quite understand. We don't have the like dynamics for that yet, especially in these production systems. Um, So that's one part of it. And then the other end of the spectrum, I think, is how do you productize machine learning? So how do you have the mindset that machine learning is a tool, but package that into something that non-technical or non-machine learning people can understand and use to get some sort of business value in applications they have. So take my company, for example, we build machine learning pipelines for car companies, vehicle companies. And a lot of the challenge is in defining a product that the car companies can understand because there's no like right or wrong machine learning model, right? There's always a trade-off between precision and recall. And there's always a like varying level of F1 that you could have depending on how you train your model. 
And how do you kind of communicate these results and have the client be able to choose that and know exactly what that translates to in ROI? I think those are definitely hard problems that I think are necessary to solve. Next, Shreya discusses one of the things that she's learned as she's done more machine learning in industry as opposed to in academia. One of the mistakes that I've made is assume that, it it sounds silly when I say it out loud, but I think a lot of people make this mistake too. A lot of people, myself included, (coughs) assume that the hardest machine learning problem to solve is the one that delivers the most value. When who said that's true, right? You want to solve the machine learning problem that like saves the most money or delivers the most business value. And maybe that's something as simple as just building a product that like maximizes recall. Who knows, right? You you don't know the cost of your false positives. You need to assess the cost of your false positives and your false negatives in order to figure this out. But yeah, I think just trying to figure out, put yourself in the customer's shoes Figure out what is it that they care about? What is the hardest thing for them from a non-machine learning perspective? Because machine learning is just a tool, right? Like maybe some like decision stump is the way to get there. In fact, Mm -hmm. a lot of the times I've found that a decision stump is literally all they're lacking before they can serve whatever predictions they want to serve. But to get to that requires like a shift away from like solving the hardest machine learning problems and just solving the ones that are immediately bringing value. One of the fun surprises to come out of my interview with Shreya was to get a chance to hear about her checklist for the full process from EDA to modeling to putting something into production. I gotta go find it. But at a high level, it's broken into one, define the data pipelines, make sure they're reliable. If you're ingesting them regularly, make sure that you're tracking like how they change over time. Two is define the labels. Three is to find the evaluation metric you're going for, whether that's like precision or recall, precision at some sort of recall, recall at some, I don't know, come up with whatever you want, make sure you know exactly what that translates to. Then four is serious data cleaning. And that can kind of be informed by like the stats that you track on your data pipelines. So for example, if you know how your data is changing over time as you regularly ingest, Or you also know what are the mins and maxes, what the percentiles are. Most real-world data is not normally distributed. So to me, it doesn't make sense to do any Z-score-based cleaning. Do some sort of outlier, like IQR-based cleaning. Mm -hmm. So for example, like I'll throw out like anything that's three, but more than three IQRs above the median, for example. Uh, It's more robust, I guess. And when I say throw out, I'll replace it with null. I think a lot of it is like diving into the data and the cleaning stage and like figuring out, okay, does it make sense? What do you do when you find an outlier? Because an outlier is different in different contexts. Do you make it null? Do you clamp it or clip it or whatever the terminology is? Is an outlier an erroneous sensor reading? Because if so, maybe you should make it null. But Mm -hmm. is it just a super, super abnormally high reading? Because if so, then you should probably clamp it. So I think all of this is kind of developing intuition for what your data is, cleaning it in that way, knowing that you'll have to go through multiple iterations, tracking how those outliers change over time. And then, yeah, I think Andrew Ng has a good talk that he recently did about this in terms of the modeling side. But for me, like, I will start with a stupid decision tree, like depth two or three, feed in a little Mm -hmm. handful of features, see what happens, fix the model. 
and kind of change the subsampling ratio and whatnot just to get a sense for a lot of this is just again developing intuition for like what my data is what my class imbalance is like does subsampling help or not oversampling undersampling all of those stuff usually i'll fix the model do all the iteration on the data side anyways know like what features to add incrementally i feel like i can go on and on about this <laughs> tell me when to stop so um, uh, yeah i guess to so what is step five on that on that list then yeah, oh, step five for me, like having a principled way of adding new features, I think is important. Like you can come up with thousands and thousands of features if you're going to do hand feature engineering, but how do you know what delivers value and what doesn't? And so maybe that's something like write your pipelines to generate a bunch of features and then kind of run some like statistical tests, for example, like the, I can never pronounce it right. Kolmogorov-Smirnov test, KS test, or the Mann-Whitney test, or, or Jensen-Shannon divergence, or something, mm-hmm. right, to determine whether the distribution of the feature in the like positive class is different from the distribution of the feature in the negative class. So if there's a big divergence, then maybe this feature, at a first order or at a high level, is actually indicative of um, some sort of failure or some sort of prediction task that you're interested in. But of course, these are just statistical tests, right? So if the p-value is really tiny, well, if you have just a really huge sample size, right, the p-value will inevitably tiny, will inevitably be tiny. So you mm-hmm. can't just like treat this as ground truth, right? So maybe just run these tests to get a high level sense of what features alone are discriminative between your positive and negative class. Mm-hmm. And then you can use that maybe ranking as like an order of what you add features to your tree in order to tease out the interactions between features. Yeah, a lot of this is just, it's iteration on that. But for me, I think the biggest thing is hold your model constant and do most of your iteration on the feature side and make sure that you have an evaluation setup that you don't change. Yeah. So yeah, evaluate on the same test set no matter what. Or evaluate on the same series of test sets. I think it's more robust to have a series of test sets because that's more indicative, I guess, of what you would be doing in the live setting. Okay, after that, it becomes very like, there's no like steps, I think, there, because that's the back and forth, I think, with the Mm. other stakeholders to figure out like what is viable, right? I think it's on the ML practitioner to come up with a setup that they believe is representative of the real world setting. But once they've come up with that and they've fixed all of the like hoses into the machine learning model, then it's just iteration on like the data or whatever going in to make sure that the metric is something that the other stakeholders understand and they're happy with. And you figured out how you can be confident that you can replicate that metric in like a real world setting. So maybe that's like your holdout evaluation sets have high performance or like whatever mm-hmm. you come up with. I think that's good science. Um, and then after that, I think is the, the game of the production, the serving, all of that kind of stuff. For me, I think it's like understanding the latency requirements. So one is understanding the inference cycles of what the customer expects. So do they expect like when they ping for new predictions, that the predictions are literally representative of that moment in time? Or would they be happy with just if I just generated the predictions overnight, for example, and then store mm. them in a Postgres table and I just serve the Postgres mm-hmm. table? Are they okay with five hours stale predictions, right? So like understanding both like how frequently you need to run inference to make them happy 
and what that latency is that they expect. Because you can decouple them if you like, if you want, right? You don't have to run inference every time they ping the API. As we wrapped up our conversation, I asked Shreya what she thought that the most unexpectedly useful skill that she learned in school was. I think having taken classes in databases was probably the most useful thing for my production systems because a lot of this like designing production pipelines is like figuring out what schemas to host your data in and what schemas to serve your predictions in such that like the modeling is smooth or the model pipeline is smooth and mm. also the users can interact with the outputs pretty easily. And if you design that inference pipeline, like that links back to your like feature store. So what's the schema going to be of your feature store, which links back to your like data that you ingest? What's going to be the schema of the data that you ingest? I think all of that and designing all of that was, I, I'm glad that I took a databases class. In addition to her recommendation to learn more about databases, she also had the insights to recommend this next skill. I want to Spark for sure. I think just the abstraction of writing Spark code, writing in MapReduce, I guess, writing code in that MapReduce paradigm. I think there's a lot of limitations in Spark, actually, especially for like stats tests or like various probability related things or stats related things you might want to do like that doesn't exist natively in spark right all of these like Mm -hmm. stats that i was telling you about like they don't exist natively in spark kind of like there are a lot of like low-hanging fruit projects i think that people can do in spark that could generate value but i'm still i feel like a spark newbie sometimes in terms of trying to understand the query plan or like figuring out why my 100 executors is not enough or I don't know, like how to partition properly. And, yeah, yeah, like it's... how to write optimized Spark is like definitely an art. The other thing is learn how to use a Spark history server or the Yarn server. Figure out what tasks are the bottleneck and the DAG, like all of these things. You can go down a rabbit hole in Spark. So it's like the question of like how far are you willing to go, I think. In the rest of the interview, Shreya talked about some of the articles that she's written and the research that she's done. So if you're interested in hearing why she concentrated in systems in undergrad, why she decided to go into industry instead of pursuing a PhD, or about AI saviorism, as she calls it, definitely check out episode 9. The next guest I wanted to feature was Luigi Petruno. He's the director of data science at 2U and writes the excellent blog, ML in Production, one of my favorites on the internet. At the start of the interview, I asked him what he thought teams could do to be more rigorous in their engineering of machine learning systems. I would say that a lot of teams think about monitoring too late. And that's been my experience with some of the teams I've been a part of, where monitoring only becomes a concern after there's been some sort of issue where either a customer has complained or there's been some unplanned downtime and you realize, hey, I had this application that I'm running that's, of course, powered by machine learning, but at the end of the day, it's still a software application. And I need to be able to understand the behavior of this application when it's at risk of going down or when it actually is down or when there's some sort of irregularity that needs to be diagnosed. So I'm actually going through this exercise right now at work for a particular product that we manage and run. 
uh, production critical application. And what I'm doing there is we're starting with looking at the application holistically and thinking through what are the metrics that we want to be able to visualize and understand on a daily basis and going through the application and looking through exactly where those metrics would need to be admitted from. So for instance, if you're, and this really depends on the context, both of the business problem and domain, as well as the type of models that you're using. So there's no really one size fits all, like you need to log this or you need to not log that, this or that metric. I think it really depends on exactly what metrics are important to your application and your models and what's important to the business at hand. And on top of that, this is this is very standard practice for typical software engineering teams that are running web-based applications, and especially for DevOps teams. Another concept that has become a, a bit more on vogue is this concept of uh, observability, where you don't know a priori which metrics you might care about, but there you want to be able to understand the sort of context of an application or the what was going on at particular times so that you can debug issues even when you don't have specific metrics that you were able to plan beforehand. So thinking through, I think the logging is very important, right? That's something that most data scientists don't have much experience with, but becomes very important for when you're developing applications, right? What are the log messages that I'm emitting? What's the severity level of those logs? What context do I present in those log messages? Because you might think that logs are helpful when you're debugging, when you're first building the application, but they become way more helpful when you're diagnosing errors once your applications have gone into production, right? So we're right now taking a holistic look, not just at the metrics that we want to emit, but also the log messages that we want to emit to ensure that there's appropriate context contained within those logs. So if there are issues that we find later on down the road, we can just take a look at our sort of centralized logs rather than thinking through the flow of the application and trying to develop the context either within our heads or through some examples. So I think in, ter- in terms of monitoring, I would say you want to, ideally you'd like to do this before you deploy your application into production. Of course, if you deploy it and it's running and then you run into an issue, you have to do it. But by that point, you've already run into some sort of customer issues. Mm-hmm. Before you deploy this into production, think through monitoring Think through the issues you, that might occur. Think through what sort of context you would like to be able to see if there was an issue that occurred, both in terms of log messages you want to read and also just diagnostic metrics that you could you know, emit beforehand. So for instance, if you have a regression model, you might just want to emit the outputs of the model. And that way you could at least see trailing averages over, the, over some trailing window of time to see whether or not the uh, prediction outputs from your model basically align with what you expect them to. And, and there's a number of things you can admit. That those, that's just one example. If you have a classification mm-hmm. problem, obviously you can admit the class probabilities if you have those or just the, the chosen class if you have that, the number of predictions that you're emitting per time period. You sort of, there, I would say that there's a level in terms of the types of metrics you emit, whether they're strictly operational or based on the applications, more like APM metrics. And then you can go further up the stack and think more about machine learning specific metrics, such as what's the average prediction that the model is producing. And you can even go further in terms of once you actually uh, retrieve the actual targets for those predictions, can you tie those back to your model predictions and then actually determine rigorously how are the models performing? But that, of course, is dependent on whether 
on how quickly you observe the targets for your problem. So it's pretty pretty long-winded answer I just gave, but there's a, a lot of specific issues that you can think through and plan for. And I'd suggest doing that before you deploy your model uh, so that you can have something to look at once you once there are issues. One of the common themes in Luigi's writing on his blog and newsletter is that engineers, especially in machine learning, should keep the business perspective in mind. And so in this next clip, I asked him to elaborate on what he meant by that. You know, I fell into the same trap when I was an individual contributor, you know, now I'm managing a, a department. But when I was an individual contributor, I was focused really on the scientific question and the technical research question. And I wanted to try out the latest and greatest, mostly because I'm a nerd and I find those things interesting. It's, you know, I got part of the reason I got into data science was because I just found it so cool that you can predict things. And there was really fancy sort of complicated algorithms that can give you insights that no human could potentially uh, generate on his or her own. But the story really changed uh, a bit when I went into management and probably a little bit before that, just from me starting my own blog, which is my own business and thinking in terms of how much time and money am I spending on this and what is the payoff that I'm getting, right? In terms of my blog articles, I am very focused on putting out just the most uh, valuable and helpful material to get people who are actually working in the field value. I don't care about clicks for clicks sake. And I would much rather have a, a short, I would, I would much rather have two or three short articles that are really po- on, on, you know, pointed and, and about a particular topic than I would like 20 articles that are all discussing like fads and latest and greatest things that, you know, potentially in one month's time aren't going to be very important or are just fluff material. So if you take that same sort of perspective in, into your machine learning work, you can either have Typically, you can use some small subset of algorithms that work pretty well, are very well understood, might be simple, might not be exciting, but do the job well. Or you can have an entire huge class of algorithms that are more exciting in certain ways, but at the end of the day, can actually be considered fluff from a sort of business perspective. And what I mean by that is, even in terms of some accuracy, you might have a model that does well enough and definitely gets the business results, but you want to squeeze out some more predictive performance. So you do something a little bit more complex at the expense of maybe making the models uninterpretable, hard to explain, harder to debug, needing more machinery around deploying and monitoring it. And while that latter algorithm might be more exciting in terms of business results, you're putting a lot more input there for the output that you're getting out. So thinking in terms of achieving the results as efficiently as possible, even at the expense of using something that may not be as interesting as a complicated neural network or any other sort of GANs or any other class of algorithm that you might be interested in using. While it may be a little bit less interesting to do that, you'll have better results typically from a business perspective just because you're doing something more efficiently. So at the end of the day, people need to remember, I think people need to keep in mind that the machine learning part of a company is still just part of a company. And what a company is trying to do is hit its its business KPIs and its business metrics. So if the machine learning enterprise is not contributing to those business metrics, then it's net negative rather than a net positive. And to the extent possible, you want to be a positive. Similar to the last two interviews, I wanted to ask Luigi what he thought that machine learning engineers should learn that would be most valuable in the future. 
and he gave a very different and very interesting answer than the others. Yeah, again, I would say start with your, your, what's, what you're interested in. If you're, I think if you're interested in going more of like the engineering route, you should focus on a particular set of things versus if you're going more of the business route, you should focus on a particular other set of things. My Another friend of mine, Emmanuel Amison, he wrote a, a pretty popular book, I think Building yeah, ML-Powered Applications. Yeah. And he had a nice blog post or, or I forgot exactly what blog post it was, but he spoke about the, the essentially like a split between data scientists and ML engineers, where ML engineers are more focused on the engineering questions and can profit more from understanding sort of software engineering. Whereas data scientists really need to understand the business much more. If that's the sort of split that you want to think about things in the, in the which you want to think about things. And I think like I've spent much more time recently learning you know, about business concepts, about achieving particular outcomes, about leading teams because I'm managing the department, mm. about project management because I'm managing machine learning projects and they're, they're very different from sort of software projects. And to some extent, that was uh, curiosity-driven and to another extent, that was also driven by me deciding to go into management rather than to focus on becoming like an individual contributor. So I would say step one is figure out what you like to do and you're not going to go wrong in spending time as much time as you want there because you'll only satisfy yourself more. Step two is once you figure that out, try to focus on a lot of the skills, I would say, that are not traditionally contained within ML engineering or data science. Because I think if you're a decent enough data scientist or ML engineer, Peter Thiel has this concept of like competition being a bad thing. And if you really want to mm-hmm. advance yourself in your career... Do you want to be really like competing with the top researchers at Google in terms of algorithms? Yeah. That was something I used to spend a lot of time thinking about. Oh, I need to understand these algorithms better than everybody else. And I think for the most part, that was just wasted time because most importantly, I don't really care about algorithms too much. But second is, if I want to be advancing my career, I don't want to be competing at a cutthroat level with people who have PhDs and have spent like years doing this work because they really enjoy it. I would yeah. rather, I'd rather develop cross-disciplinary skills because you're much more likely to be rare if you have a set of interdisciplinary skills than you are by being a specialist into one area. And somebody like Scott Adams also has this perspective, right? Where get get decently good at a, a number of different things and no one is going to be like you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and even in Peter Thiel, I think it's actually in his in the Blake Masters original notes that turned into zero to one. Thiel had a, a, a section, at least on... You're building your personal monopoly in your mm-hmm. career right. where you want to yeah, differentiate yourself. There's a pretty common career framework in terms of like skills where you have you want to be a T-shaped, where you have the minimum spanning set of skills to be able to, I don't know, put something into production. And then you go really deep into one. Do you think that's a decent way of, of looking at it? I think that's a way of looking at it. I'm, I'm opposed to any of these types of models because I don't think any, everything applies to everybody. So mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I would rather do be driven by my curiosity and interest than I would by what somebody else says, how somebody else says I should be um, in order to maximize like something that they care about. So if you want to be really deep in one area and have a broad skill set in others, that's fine. Or maybe you want to be deep in two areas. Who am I to say that you shouldn't be deep in two areas? I think, I think just being self-reflective is most important. If you find that you're spending a lot of time, if you find that you're not enjoying what you're doing, 
then it doesn't matter if you're T-shaped or if you're W-shaped or if you're, you're O-shaped. Like you just don't spend, you just don't enjoy what you're doing. So it doesn't really matter. Mm-hmm. If you are enjoying what you're doing, potentially do more of it. But if you're trying to optimize for your income and also curiosity, <laughs> there's different constraints. So I think it's, it's hard to just put out some general model that will apply to everybody. I think, I think people are a little bit too serious about these things as well, too focused on, oh, I need to do this thing. I need to be the best. I need to, and it, it's good to be f- focused on achieving goals. I think that's very important, but I would rather have those goals be my own goals than be what somebody else says I should be doing. So if, if you want to be T-shaped, go ahead. If I think I try to solve the problems that come up in my life. So I, I started talking about deployment because I was dealing with deployment problems. But if I was a landscaper, I probably wouldn't give a shit about deployment problems and machine learning. Focusing a bit on like the problems that actually come up and trying to solve those as well as possible. I just have this concept of like excellence. Whatever I do, I just want to be very excellent at it because mm-hmm. that's what I enjoy doing. Work on a couple of things, work on the things that you enjoy doing and then solve the problems that arise within those things and just solve them very well, or at least work hard to solve them. That's a really great answer. Yeah, I'm probably overthinking a lot of these things, like you said. <laughs> yeah, and, and this is and, and I say this only because I've gone through the exact same thing. I spent years thinking I needed to read like the most complicated machine learning books in order to be have a good position in the field. And then at some point I realized I don't use most of this stuff at all. Yeah, have have I'd say folk, spend a little bit more time trying to have fun during the actual study or during the work, and you'll your quality of life will probably be a bit higher. Yeah, yeah, it's it's funny you mentioned the not having to keep up. If you are more of a like an engineering focused person, you yeah, you like you said, you don't need to be competing with the top PhDs in terms of knowing how the algorithms actually worked. I very recently decided not to do not to keep up super up to date with like full state of the art. And I think that was definitely a good decision that saved me a lot of stress. So I, it's given that the audience that's listening to this is mostly people who are trying to put ML into production. Right. Yeah, I would, I would also give that advice as well. Yeah, I used to get a lot of newsletters. All of these newsletters have the latest and greatest algorithm. And I'd be like, oh, how, can I, how am I going to read all of these things and, and learn from them? And now I just delete them. Now, I, I don't, <laughs> now, as soon as I see like anything about state of the art, I'm, most likely, I'm more than likely not like going to just delete that email. And I, I, I definitely, I don't feel like I'm suffering. <laughs> yeah, going back to Josh Tobin in the episode, he said that you really want to see what has been persistent, what models have, what were the papers that are just like always being used. And you don't need to, you can just chill a little bit and learn things that continue to be useful. Right. Yeah, this yeah. is a Lundy's effect, right? Yeah. The, thing, the things that have persisted over time. If something new emerges today, more likely than not, it's not going to be here tomorrow. So don't spend too much time thinking about it today. But maybe if that thing emerges today and, and two years from now, it's like the thing that everybody is still using, uh, that tells you you should probably learn something about it. Mm-hmm. But linear regression has been used for a long time. And um, I don't think it's going anywhere anytime soon. Yeah, yeah. And random forests solve a surprisingly large amount of problems yeah. that you run into. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so I think you can get pretty far with, like I said, knowledge of, of a pretty limited subset of all these algorithms. And in this final featured clip of the interview, I asked Luigi during my rapid fire questions what he thought the most overlooked use case or application for machine learning is. Yeah, uh, tabular data. Uh, <laughs> tabular data is what most companies have, regardless of like whether they're working on computer vision or not. 
they probably still have a lot of tabular data. So I think more emphasis on that problem would would lead to just the, the greatest value add across companies. Yeah, yeah, it seems like all the deep learning stuff it's for all the complex data, yep. images, videos and yeah. Yeah, and that stuff's tabular. and that stuff's like clearly important, but I think small to medium sized tabular data sets. That's the that's where the money's at. Mm-hmm. What advice would you give to someone just entering the field? Don't take yourself too seriously. <laughs> would be probably number one. Don't focus on trying to keep up with everything. Uh, the thing is, you know, things are fast. Things are quickly changing and you just don't know what will be important in the near future. So mostly focus on getting, focus on the fundamentals and just focus on learning what the business actually cares about because that will yeah. take you further in your career than most likely take you further in your career than trying to understand how transformers work and how BERT works and how Excel BERT works and how GP3T works. I, I, I think to some extent, but there are people who need to work on those problems, but most people don't. Also, in this interview with Luigi, he talked about some of the details of logging in ML systems, what some of the most valuable types of tools are, and one of the most interesting articles on his blog about Code 2.0, the future of what software engineering will look like. So if you're interested in that, you should check out episode 16. The next and final guest that I'm going to feature is Andreas Jensen. He recently completed his PhD from City University in London in music informatics. And accordingly, he was a machine learning engineer at Spotify. So I asked him what he's seen as the biggest challenges of using machine learning as a core competency at a company. Yeah, that's a really interesting question. So when I started programming professionally, I was working, this was maybe 13 years ago now, I was working as a PHP developer for a little web agency in London. We were making e-commerce websites for various companies and we would deploy things by SSHing into the, or actually some machines we SSHed into some machines, we just FTP the <laughs> file up to. When we joined the company, we got an email with just a shell script that you in the middle of the email that was like after you do this step restart the server and then you do this following step copy paste these following steps and then (laughs) after half an hour you have a production machine ready to be deployed and you would go in and restart apache once you've uploaded the code and we used version control for most of the projects svn but it was just this really janky process. And then through my career, I've, I've seen continuous integration and Puppet and things like that to manage uh, servers. So you don't have to manually mm-hmm. go in and, and fiddle around on, on the machines anymore. Docker, all of these tools that make it, it's not, I wouldn't say it's like easy or an enjoyable experience to do a sysadmin type work, but it's definitely better than it was when I started. And then coming into uh, doing machine learning and, and deep learning and things like that. And and now again, you are spinning up a machine, you um, install the CUDA drivers, you restart the computer after maybe you have to f- fiddle with some, what is it, uh, the, the NVIDIA settings and the um, Novo or whatever it's called. And, and you have to, you, you end up having this shell script in a file somewhere that you yeah, send all around. Yeah, the math libraries friend. as well. Uh, yeah, exactly, exactly. 
So you end up with this very sort of pristine machine that you've configured so that it'll work with deep learning. And then you sit and write your code locally, and then you just make sure that it just hangs together end to end. But then you SSH, SCP that code up to the remote machine. Maybe you have a little rsync script or something. (laughs) SSH into that machine, and then you start training and maybe you have to edit some files on that remote machine because something broke when you ran it on the GPU or something, and you have to copy those files. But it's it feels like going back in time 13 years to being a PHP developer at a web agency. And there are a lot of things, I think, that can be improved in that process. I think people, the team I was on, extremely good smart people we spent i don't know how often you just looked at the person next to you and you saw this sort of almost like giving up kind of thing in their eyes where they're just, <laughs> i have no idea what's going on i'm getting some cuda trace back here i don't know what's happening and then you have to spend you lose all of your momentum and you spend half a day just debugging some weird gpu thing yeah so yeah it's we're at the quite like the algorithms, when they work, it's amazing what they can do. But to get there is a really frustrating journey at the moment, I feel like. Yeah, definitely. One of the probably most, one of those moments that I had of where, like you said, you just give up. You're like, oh my God, I can't believe this is happening. It was so good. And then it was so, now it's so bad. <laughs> where it was where I, I trained like this super good model. And at the time, the company we're working at, they, it was, we were doing some, Shared because like they wanted to take advantage of the time of the savings when you reserve instances. So they had to, they kept them running as much as possible. And I had a really good model that was working. It was reporting, like you said, I was R syncing the training stats back to where to back to my local computer. And I was like, oh wow, it, the training is going amazing. And then the next day, I come in and find out that machine had accidentally been overwritten by someone else who was trying to use it. <laughs> uh, and every all that work was now gone. And of course, I only had the stats. And yeah. of course, I was also not versioning anything yeah, yeah. in all of this. And so it was about a week's worth of modeling work, all completely gone. So yeah, and, like and, you said, yeah. it does seem like we're five years plus uh, behind the times. Exactly. And when you do that, like I've done that too, or I've trained a model and it's been training for a week. And in that time I've been on my local machine updating the code. And then by the time the model is trained, I've forgotten to commit that initial thing that actually worked. And then I have (laughs) no idea what I changed to get that model and I can't reproduce it anymore. And then you just feel really stupid and you feel like you've made a mistake and you're bad at your job. But actually, I think it's, I don't think we should be so hard on ourselves. I've been talking to a lot of machine learning people this year, sort of asking them about how they do their work. And there's a lot of apologies. People say <laughs> things like, yeah, I don't commit enough to Git or I don't, I don't have enough tests or uh, things, even things on the math is on the more sort of modeling machine learning side, whereas I accidentally evaluated on my training set and there's so many ways to to shoot yourself in the foot and there used to be at least as many ways to shoot yourself in the foot with normal software engineering but we've put some guardrails up and mitigated the the worst ways you can shoot yourself in the foot and but that's just not the case yet for machine learning so i think people should be 
less hard on themselves and just realize that this this is largely a tooling problem. Yeah, exactly. It reminds me of one of many times where I'm debugging a model, and this, of course, would have been made much easier if I had just simply written tests. And it is funny that you bring up how when you talk to these people, they are apologizing because they know that these practices are, that they should be doing all these things, but it is just so much overhead in terms of the tools just not being there. You have to track things inside of a spreadsheet, even on Replicate's website, which we'll get to in a minute. It says, throw away your spreadsheets. And that is (laughs) a perfect headline because it's so funny that I don't think anyone explicitly told all these data scientists to use a like just a normal Excel spreadsheet to track things, but that's what everyone ends up doing because there is no other solution. Yeah, it's the state of the art. The spreadsheet is really straight <laughs> state of the art. So to transition to what you're building right now, what is a how do you imagine the future of this tooling? What do you imagine that should be like? How we what do you th- what are your thoughts on that in general? You mean the tool that we're building or in general, what machine learning should be like? Sure, we can start with the broad picture of what would the ideal tool chain look like? We have a, at this point, like you said, software engineering has really come a long way in terms of being proactive instead of reactive, having things that are completely reproducible. What do you think that looks like for machine learning engineering? Yeah, there's, there's so many angles to this. I would love to be able to uh, read a paper on the archive and then just download the model and run some inferences myself. Things like that should just exist, just like when someone publishes a new, uh, what's a good example from, a, a new database or something, and you just download that mm. database, you just run it and you put some data into it and you can play around with API. You should be able to use any, at least these more, what's the word, like application-focused machine learning algorithms, like the latest segmentation model, just as easily as you can run a, a scikit-learn model. That's one thing I think that's missing. Being able to just workflow-wise, being able to work on a model locally and then just press a button and it's trained somewhere and that the thing that worked locally is going to work remotely and mm-hmm. that to get that sort of iteration cycle faster. I think that's one of the, my biggest problems with machine learning now is that you you spend so much time just shuffling code up to remote servers and waiting for experiments to finish. That's a harder thing. I don't, I don't really know how to predict whether a model is going to be good enough just based on a small set of data. But maybe there is some, there have been some papers that try to predict the performance of a, on a larger data set based on a smaller data set. Maybe there's some stuff we can do there. Debugging as well, I think is a, is a really big issue right now. If something goes wrong, if, if the thing doesn't converge like you expect it to, it's this is just, you have to rely on your own intuition and the knowledge that you've amassed through all of the failures of of your own modeling process over the years to have some idea of, okay, maybe this, I don't know, maybe I should disable batch norm on the decoder or something. These just sort of magical things that people know, but it's not codified anywhere. And it's really Mm -hmm. hard to like, how do you even ask a question about this on Stack Overflow, right? How, if my model doesn't converge, what's, what's, is a good Stack Overflow question for that 
problem. A lot of it, I think, comes down to just just leaky abstractions all the way down. You have to, in order to be an effective machine learning engineer, you not only have to know the maths and the sort of the latest trends in how we build these networks and how we connect these components, but you also need to know all the way down to the GPU level. Like, how do I have a bottleneck in the way that uh, my GPU is shuffling memory between the GPUs or there are so many sort of things that leak into each other. It's that paper, the high interest machine learning is the high interest credit card or whatever. I can't mm-hmm. remember the name mm-hmm. of that paper from Google from a few years ago. Yeah, hidden uh, technical debt. Hidden, hidden money yeah, systems. exactly. Great paper. And I think the stuff that they talk about is still true. So being able to have solid abstractions for as many of these things as possible. Maybe we even need a better programming environment. I think the way that we write these models is quite janky. And the fact that we don't have type safety for the shapes of our tensors, maybe Swift is the answer <laughs> there. I don't know. But this, yeah, I don't know. It's, it, this could just go on forever. I feel like there's so many small and big things that are broken. I would like machine learning to feel like writing just normal software in a typed language where you can write a test and it within a few seconds that the thing works and you can reason about things without knowing all the all of the underlying details and you can ask questions on stack overflow and we have just like a language of explaining these things to each other that allows the knowledge to be shared and not just be stored in our own individual brains but how to get there is that's that's the hard question now andreas is working on a new project Replicate. It's a version control tool for machine learning models that he hopes will be widely adopted similar to Git for code. Accordingly, he has a lot of views on what the future of this machine learning tool stack will look like. And we had a discussion on the possibility for a GitHub for machine learning models. Something interesting that I was talking with someone else about was the potential for a you can treat deep learning as building blocks that you can put together as long as the tensor inputs are the same. And you already mentioned in leaky abstractions about how we don't even have a something to validate those tensor shapes. And it strikes me that you could have something that is built off of Replicate where you can include the inputs and outputs of the model and even break it down into even smaller parts. So you might have a pre-trained I don't know, GPT-2, and then just exclude the task-specific heads. But then if you know that the inputs and outputs of each of each layer, then you could upload those separately as, as model pieces. I don't know what you'd call it. And then later on, you'd be able to pull those in at the time that you need them, connect them together, train them, and then that could be maybe a better way of doing shared weights across your org instead of the... I don't know, really terrible solutions that I think a lot of people are, are doing now. I don't know if anyone's figured that one out yet. Yeah, I love that. We we were thinking a little bit about that when we built that initial um, uh, CI system where people uh, could publish their models and anyone can run an inference on them. But imagine if instead of just having to publish the latest segmentation model, maybe you have a, a Linformer or some other sort of component of a larger model that you could publish as a standalone uh, piece that anyone can pull into their model. And then it 
differentiates through that thing and you don't actually you don't have to worry about the dependencies you can imagine a future where things like a, a piece of a tensorflow can be integrated in a piece of pytorch and so you don't have to rewrite everything and you don't have to create these six seven hundred line model files uh, where you're just duplicating code from other projects you could actually just load this as a library and it, and it would save the weight somehow as part of the same artifact, even though the code comes from a completely different uh, framework. I think that future is really exciting. And it would allow us, I think, to think at the higher level of, of abstraction, where we combine components rather than having to understand kernel sizes and what, if you put the back norm <laughs> before or after the relive and things like that. Yeah, that's super interesting, connecting it with the archive paper itself. And you could imagine, a, especially when you add in the differentiation, and I'm just imagining some sort of GitHub for ML models where you can, like you say, have that, say, yeah, GPT-2, and then people are submitting pull requests of the data that they had trained a specific task on, and they would submit both the weights of their specific task head or the uh, final layers of that and also the the I guess the diff of the weights mm. I don't know how that would work of uh, and then from there you could have that run in CI where you see do these weight updates to the common model actually do make the all the other tasks that this was meant for better does it improve their metrics as well yeah exactly and and that's one of those analogies from and more traditional software engineering that I think would fit really well with machine learning as well. Like you can also imagine something like like a forking system. Someone posted a tweet a while ago where they had photoshopped a um, GitHub page of a, I think it was like the original Transformer paper. And then a fork of that Transformer paper is BERT and another fork is GPT-2 <laughs> and then GPT-3 is a fork of GPT-2. And so you could track the lineage of research as well as the code and to understand how these models were, were created and the ideas that went into them. I think that sort of thing would be great, both in, in terms of just use, you know, the practical use cases, but also just understanding the research. One thing that we have been thinking about, I don't know if it made it into the roadmap because it's maybe too far ahead in the future, but, but like having, like you say, a GitHub-like place where people's models and code and papers all get published and they're all connected to each other and they are composable like that. The, feels like we're going in direction now where we have figured out that okay, maybe a ResNet block is good enough and we just duplicate that a bunch of times. But then we end up with these pre-trained models for one domain. And then now we want to do stuff in multiple domains at the same time. Maybe we want to have an agent that, that understands the, the concept of a kitchen uh, and it can read things on uh, the milk packet and it can plan its way through the space. So it's all of these different modalities that it has to understand. So the, there are different models for all of these things. And maybe you can just replace the, the text understanding model inside that system with the latest state of the art. And then all of a sudden that whole kitchen navigation system improves just by oh, being wow. able to plug the, these things in. I think something like that, I think seems to be a direction that we're heading. And yeah, that super interesting stuff that could happen there, I think. In the rest of this episode, Andreas went into detail on some of the research he's done 
in machine learning for music information retrieval. And then he talked about the features and design decisions that went into building his new tool, Replicate. And if you want to learn more about that, listen to episode 17. I hope that you enjoyed listening to these highlights as much as I did. This is the first time that I've made something with its format. So if you loved it, if you hated it, send me your feedback. You can either DM me on Twitter, I'm active, at charlieuai, or you can shoot me an email, charlie at mlengineered.com. Thank you so much for listening. It is a huge honor to be able to bring you these conversations. If you want to learn more about anything mentioned in this podcast, visit our website, mlengineered.com to view detailed show notes and sign up for our email list, where every week I send out the best of what I've found that will help you become a better machine learning researcher, engineer, or entrepreneur. That's mlengineered.com. Thank you.